As we continue to worship God and turning to his word this morning, we're going to be turning to Matthew chapter, chapter 5. We've been going through a series on the Beatitudes, and we're asking ourselves, what is it that Jesus really taught? What was the essence of his preaching? And so we found out that as he was, he was uh, recorded in Matthew leading in his ministry after John the Baptist had been arrested, who was announcing his coming, and pointed out that he was the one that was the fulfillment of all righteousness. That's John's words. We find that Jesus was then reserving himself in the going into the northern regions above Jerusalem into the region of Galilee. These, these boundaries were really fixed by the Roman government. They were, they were different areas that were under certain jurisdictions of certain rulers appointed by Rome. And so in that region of Galilee, you had someone who was ruled differently from those who were in, some, in Judah. And Jesus began to preach in that region of Galilee, and he preached this message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll find those two terms inter, interspersed without, in, in, throughout Matthew's gospel. And the most amazing thing is that Jesus is saying this, that you who were once far from God, stop running away from him, turn back to God. And let him become your king. What was even more, Jesus was saying, I am the one through whom you can approach God. And so when Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching and preaching that message, he was also doing some healing. And as people were gathering, we talked about this the last two Sundays, or three Sundays, we said, which of the three did people gather for or come to Jesus for? And the answer was they probably came to him for healing. And so it's not a surprise that in chapter 5, Matthew records for us that Jesus did something astounding. He stopped healing and he began to teach and preach and give to those who would hear how they could have the good life. I want to invite you to hear the good life as we read and we together ponder the word of God found in Matthew chapter 5. Would you stand with me and let us hear the word of God once again. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. This is the word of God. You may be seated. When you think of the term righteousness, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really ring a bell in our, our vernacular these days. Uh, for those of you who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you, remember, you might remember the Righteous Brothers. Remember them? Uh, you might remember a couple of other people who were called righteous, like the right reverend righteous, whoever it might be. James Brown was called the righteous one of, 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 of uh, what kind of music did he sing? Yeah, there you go. Well, you know who that is. Well, the most interesting thing about righteousness is we don't understand that term anymore. 
We think it means sinlessness, and that's not how the Bible speaks of righteousness. Because no one is sinless. And so there are places in the Bible that people are called righteous by God. Well, how are they righteous? Well, in my study, one of the things that came to my astonishment was as I looked up the term righteousness in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, this definition was given. The concept of righteousness is crucial. It is crucial to the understanding of biblical theology and the theology of the Protestant Reformation. Well, what, what, is that, what, what, what does that mean? It means if you don't understand what righteousness is, then you're going to miss the whole story of the purpose of the Bibles being written. In other words, righteousness is that ability to stand before God completely sinless before him. And that's the question. Who can be? Who can be before him? in that state of sinlessness. In the Psalms, it says only those who are righteous will be able to stand before the Lord. And so our understanding of righteousness should be part of our understanding of Jesus' teaching concerning hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We find three particular places in the Old Testament where this term righteousness is used. The first is it's a fulfillment of the demands of, an, of a relationship with God or other people. And so when God would enter into a relationship with someone and say, this is what I want you to do, and they would do it, God would say, you are righteous. When he did that with Abraham, he said, leave your country your family, all that you know, and go to the land that I will show you. When Abraham did that, when he left, God said, you're righteous. And so when you begin to think of this, you think, wow, okay, it's not necessarily that place where someone never sins, but it is a definition, a recognition that someone is doing what God asked them to do, trusting God in ways that maybe then others don't trust God. The second use of it was when those who are deprived of what is their due in a relationship and they trust God for the vindication. An example of that was when Israel was enslaved by Egypt. They were wrongly treated. They cried out to God. They didn't Notice they didn't have banners of protest. They didn't decide to have a rally day where they had a march of protest against Pharaoh. They didn't raise up arms and begin to kill Egyptians, though Moses did kill one. None of these Jews, none of them in slavery, did anything more than cry out to God in the midst of their oppression. And God says that's righteousness. The third place that you find this kind of thing is where God just simply says, I declare you to be righteous. Meaning it is in God's counsel that he looks upon someone who has put their trust and faith in him. And in that trust and faith, God says, I know now you're righteous. Think of when, when Abraham offered his son on the altar and God stopped him and said, don't thrust the knife into that child. And then you go on to hear how God considered Abraham righteous. Now I know you are righteous. And so this whole business of righteousness has nothing to do with our being sinless. It has something to do with our trusting in God. 
And so it's not surprising then when Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that he begins to teach us something about this purpose of God in making those who were once far from him now acceptable to him. And there are two principles that we find from the Old Testament that speak to you and to me about what it is to find righteousness and understand who God is in his righteousness. First of all, God is righteous based upon his covenants with his people and through his savings act. What do I mean by that? God displays that he is righteous by keeping his word. And the second part of that is that we learn from the Old Testament that even apart from specific covenants where God made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with this person, that person, even beyond that, God is the God who is righteous because he saves those who fear him. Okay, we're beginning now to get a little more a better glimpse of this, aren't we? That righteousness then is something more than just being sinless. That's not it at all. It's something having to do with God and our trust in him. And so when you and I begin to think of this Old Testament principle, you will remember that Israel's righteousness did not lie in their, in their being God's people or in their oppression. It, let, it was... It was based upon their belief that God would intervene upon their own calamity, their own suffering. And so righteousness was coupled with faith, but it was a, it was a, a stature, a place that God had declared those people to be righteous because they had put their complete trust and dependence upon the Lord. When you and I begin to think of this, it is no wonder then that Jesus, when he's teaching about the, uh, the, the teaching of the kingdom of heaven, he says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. In other words, you understand just how wicked you really are. Blessed are you. And then he goes on to say, for you will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, without the acknowledgement that I am not what God wanted me to be, I have fallen short of what he intended, I will never see the kingdom of heaven. I talk to people often who tell me about being alcoholics. Have you ever run against someone like this? They say one of the first barriers to helping anyone who is an alcoholic is getting them to admit they're an alcoholic. They have to admit they have a problem. Well, that's exactly what Jesus was talking about, being poor in spirit. And not only that, he goes on to talk about this whole business of the fact that those who are poor in spirit... Also, as they draw close to God through him, will begin to mourn their sins. They'll begin to see their lives in the light of Christ, and they will begin to grieve the fact that they can't change their hearts. They can't change their nature. Only God can. And so when Jesus says, blessed are you, those of you who mourn, you will be comforted. How will we be comforted? Because God through Christ has provided a way in which we can find relief. Blessed are the meek. Oh, what is that about? Those who don't take pride in their own ability to stand before God, but realize in their own sinfulness they have no right to stand before God. And in that meekness of heart, they reach out to God for what they cannot supply in their own lives. And then probably what you would say is the turning point in Jesus' teaching is where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now let me ask you, do you? Do you wish, do you desire 
to be free of a sin in your own life? Do you look back and you think, oh, God, help me. Do you look at this world and see the injustice and what, what evil is upon the face of the earth and the overwhelming wrongness that is in this life? And do you cry out to God and say, God, help us. And you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a metaphor, by the way. You probably knew that. But when you think of hungering and thirsting, it is not just wanting a snack. It is a desperate desperate hunger, a burning thirst for goodness. And Jesus says, when you and I come to that place, we're blessed. Why? Because we'll be filled. I don't know about you, but it's, it's about 10 till 12. I'm getting kind of hungry. Are you? If you didn't eat until 3 o'clock, what kind of condition would you be in? Oh, oh I know some of you. Some of you would get a little, what they call hanky. You ever heard of hanky? There it is. And then if we didn't eat until 5 o'clock, what would happen then? Oh, boy. And it would be overwhelming to be around us. Well, get this. Jesus is using that imagery to talk about wanting goodness. And when you desire goodness that much... You are blessed. Why? Because you will be filled. How can we be filled? I don't know about you, but I think a great way to fill your tummy is by eating bread. Isn't that interesting how Jesus said, I'm the bread of life? When you and I begin to deal with this whole teaching of what Jesus is trying to guide us through, it's really understanding that one's desire for the wholeness of this righteousness that God offers is what we're desiring. It is that we want to be perfect people and we're not. And as we've come to the cross and as we've understand what God has done for us, we are set free from the penalty of sin, but we are still struggling with its presence. And as we struggle with the presence of sin in this world, it is there that, we are, that, that it elicits a hunger and a thirst to be rid of it. And in those moments that you and I wrestle in this life, as we wrestle with these desires, we passionately ask God, God, when will this end? When will I have that assurance that I'm right with you and I stay that way. When is this going to happen? That's hunger and thirst for God. You and I begin when we think about this hungering and thirsting. It is an overwhelming desire to be like Jesus in every way he was. And here is the wonderful comfort that comes in this teaching that as those people hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be right with God, and he, Jesus began to teach on how they could, he began to point to himself. He began to point to the one who could establish a satisfaction for us in this age where we still are in the presence of evil. And it is in the new covenant he has given. Remember in the old covenant, when everyone kept the covenant with God, they were considered righteous, right? Now a covenant has come through Christ where if you confess your sins and believe upon him, you are made righteous. 
And so this new covenant that God has now imparted to us through Jesus Christ doesn't replace the covenants of the Old Testament. It supersedes them and it fulfills them because every one of them pointed to this person, Jesus, who would one day come and bring satisfaction to our hearts. And so people who are drawn to God, people who come to him, why do you come? Because you hunger. You hunger for righteousness. And Jesus says when people do that, they'll be filled. It's a tremendous concept, isn't it? So often we think, okay, well, we're going to justify ourselves. We're going to live right lives. We're going to do the right things. You can't do that. Why? You have no power in and of yourself. This is why you need Jesus. On Wednesday nights, we're going through an outreach training, and one of the things that they're required to do is to give a testimony. And so as the six of the people were coming and giving testimonies, it really was amazing to hear how Christ has worked in their life. But the question still was, still was being asked, why do you believe in Jesus? That's what everyone's asking in the world. Why do we believe in Jesus? And the essence of our answer is because we hungered and thirst for righteousness and we could find no satisfaction in anything we tried to accomplish or do, but only in him who gave himself for us. And so the result of that tremendous covenant is that now that we are born into God, we are born from above. We hunger for the completion of what God began in us. We hunger for heaven. In fact, we do things like give money, give time, give effort, why? So others can come to know the way in which they can have this as well. I don't know about you, but the last two really speak to me more than anything else. This, this being filled is really quite powerful when Jesus teaches because he says, we won't be hungry by doing good things. We'll be hungry by coming to him who is able to satisfy our hunger. Let me say that again. We won't be satisfied by doing good things. We will only be satisfied by coming to him who can satisfy our hunger. Because in him we have righteousness, not based upon our own deeds, but based upon what he did in the cross for us. And one of the things is that he died to pay the penalty for our sin, but he also was raised to give us a new life where we are now clothed in his righteousness. In other words, when God sees you right now, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus' work on your behalf. You are clothed in God's righteousness so that you are now right before God. And so as we hunger to be completed in that, the most amazing thing is that God says we'll be fed. I love that, don't you? It doesn't mean we'll be stuffed. Now, some of you, I know you're going to go to the meet, you're going to go to parties, you're going to be at home, you're going to make all kinds of special hors d'oeuvres and, and all kinds of good things to eat for the Super Bowl. And by the time the game's over, you're going to completely forgot, you're going to completely have forgotten about the game because you're going to be so stuffed with food, right? 
That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that you will be fed, meaning you will be satisfied. Completely. Because you have placed your faith in what Jesus did. And what he accomplished for you. This is what John Newton sang, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We are made righteous through his work on our behalf. And we hunger and thirst even now to be filled to completion. One of my favorite passages of scripture is for he who began a good work in you. You remember the rest of it? Yeah. He will bring it to completion. Fill me, Jesus. Satisfy my hunger. We pray in the name of Christ, our Lord. And the people of God said together, <clears throat>